This is a story about a group of people who came to Toronto just to cause trouble. They raided, they looted, they shot people, and they burned down some of the most important buildings in town. It was a dark time for Toronto. Now, if the Leafs had just been eliminated from the playoffs, we could say that we understood these actions, even if we didn't approve of them. But the Leafs weren't even playing that week. These raiders were American, and they looted the town of York because of some silly war, but they would regret that decision. A year and a half later, Washington, D.C. would meet the same fate, because when you hit Toronto, Toronto hits back. This is Muddy York. This week's episode is about the Battle of York. This battle was part of the War of 1812 between the United States and the British Empire of which Canada was still a part. We don't have to go into all the complicated reasons for the war, but once it was declared, the Americans had expected a quick and easy victory. Britain was distracted by the Napoleonic Wars, and Thomas Jefferson famously said that, the acquisition of Canada this year will be a mere matter of marching. I don't know if that was supposed to be a Virginia accent, but uh, that's what I went with. That's not how it turned out, though. 1812 was a string of American defeats, punctuated by the Siege of Detroit, where an American garrison surrendered to an army half its size, and the Battle of Queenston Heights, at which Isaac Brock was famously killed. Over the winter, the Americans had time to reconsider their strategy and to prepare for new offensives once the snow and ice of winter had melted. The Americans had built a large base at Sackett's Harbour in the southeast corner of Lake Ontario. The plan was to march across the St. Lawrence to capture Kingston, which was the primary British naval base on Lake Ontario, and controlled the eastern entrance to the lake. If the Americans captured the city, it would cut off British supplies and reinforcements to most of Upper Canada, better known to us as Ontario, leaving it open to American conquest. The main problem with these plans was the commander appointed to implement them, a man named Henry Dearborn. Dearborn had been a hero during the revolution, but by 1813, he was 62 and well past his prime. I guess people aged a lot faster back then. (laughs) I guess so. He wanted to retire and his troops called Granny because he seemed so frail. In February, intelligence reports arrived saying that the Governor General, George Prevost, had arrived in Kingston with reinforcements that boosted the British garrison to more than 6,000 men. In reality, it was just an inspection tour, and the Kingston garrison was a third of that size, but Dearborn insisted that he couldn't possibly capture Kingston. Instead, he suggested a naval attack on the town of York, better known to us as Toronto. Now, There was an official reason for why the Americans planned to attack York and an unofficial reason. The official reason was to capture the two warships in the harbor, the Prince Regent, a 12-gun schooner, and the Sir Isaac Brock, a 30-gun frigate then under construction. These ships could help the Americans secure control of Lake Ontario. The unofficial reason was politics. The first year of the war had gone badly and anti-war candidates had been elected throughout New England. New York would be holding an election for governor in April, and the federal government badly needed a victory to rally the pro-war voters. 
Despite being the capital of Upper Canada, York was not well defended. According to the census, it had a population of just 625. Its main protection came from Fort York. This was an earlier version of the fort that we know today, back when it stood at the water's edge, guarding the entrance to the harbor. It wasn't even called Fort York. People just called it the garrison or the fort. The problem was that the garrison only had 200 men, and most of the cannon didn't work. Some were more than 20 years old. The British knew about these problems, but resources were limited, and Prevost had refused requests for more men and artillery. The American attack was supposed to be launched in early April, before the New York election, but it took longer than normal for the ice in Sackett's Harbor to melt. The federal government got around this problem by circulating victory proclamations before the attack had even been launched, which is so much simpler than actually fighting a battle. They also held back soldiers from New York so that they would be available to vote. It worked, and the pro-war candidate won a narrow election victory. In York, the Prince Regent took advantage of the American delay to sail for Kingston, but supply problems and disputes with the shipbuilder meant that the Sir Isaac Brock was still unfinished. The American invasion force sailed on April 24th. It was made up of 1,750 soldiers on board 14 ships carrying 83 guns. Dearborn was the overall commander, but the attack was to be led by a man with the outstanding name of Zebulon Montgomery Pike. The American fleet would be spotted by lookouts on the Scarborough Bluffs two days later. Sighting through York into a frenzy, members of the militia grabbed their weapons and began moving towards the fort. People rushed to hide or bury their valuables. Elizabeth Powell was disappointed that she had to cancel her dinner party, but she was happy to learn that she hadn't been snubbed by the guests who never showed up. As it happened, the British commander for Upper Canada, a man named Roger Sheaf, was in York when the Americans arrived. Sheaf had assumed command after Isaac Brock was killed. Despite winning the Battle of Queenston Heights, he was unpopular because he lacked Brock's dyn dynamism, dynamism and charisma. He had been on his way to Niagara, but stayed in York because he had the hunch that the Americans might attack. Two companies of troops also happened to be passing through town. That was the good news. The bad news was that only 300 militia could be mustered on such short notice. Militiamen were citizen soldiers. They had minimal training and could be very, very unreliable. Combined with about 100 Mississauga and Ojibwe warriors and 700 men were available to defend York. The Americans outnumbered them more than two to one. Chief had so little confidence in his chances of victory that he ordered all government documents to be buried to keep them from falling into American hands. He was also acting on orders from Prevost, who wrote that, in the event of an attempt at invasion, it will be wise to act with such caution as would enable you to husband your resources for future exertion. For future exertion. In other words, if the Americans had the advantage, withdraw and live to fight another day. The next morning, the Americans were planning to land west of Fort York in a clearing with an old French fort near the site of the CNE Banshell. It's a military axiom that amphibious landings need to be halted at the water's edge before the invaders can establish a beachhead. That's where Sheaf deployed his elite grenadiers. 
However, the wind blew the Americans further west, and they wound up landing near Maryland Bell Park, where only the Mississauga and Ojibwe forces would be there to meet them. Sheaf ordered the Grenadiers to move west, but they had to take the back roads to avoid American naval guns, and by the time they arrived, the Americans already outnumbered them. Attempts to storm the beachhead were bloodily repulsed, and a second attack on the American forces was stopped by a combination of artillery and naval cannon fire. Watching from his ship, General Pike couldn't stand to be so far from the action, so he jumped into a boat and made for the shore. The British forces fell back to the east, past the French fort, to a gun emplacement called the Western Battery, near the site of the automotive building. Unfortunately, the British forces at the Western Battery had three problems. Problem one was that they were wildly outgunned by the American ships firing on them from the lake. Problem two was that the battery was designed to attack ships at sea, not soldiers on land. So when they tried to turn the cannon to target the Americans advancing along the lake shore, the guns were too high to hit anything. Problem number three was that at some point, a spark struck a portable magazine packed with cartridges and powder causing an explosion that destroyed most of the battery. According to one witness, every man in the battery was blown into the air and the dissection of the greater part of their bodies was inconceivably shocking. With the Western battery damaged beyond repair, British forces fled back to Fort York, which was also under fire from the guns of the American ships. At that point, Sheaf made the decision to withdraw from York. He was going to abandon the town to save what was left of his forces. On his way out, he gave orders to burn the unfinished Sir Isaac Brock to prevent it from falling into enemy hands. As his men marched out of the town, they would burn the bridge over the Don River to prevent any American pursuit. Sheaf's last order was to destroy the munitions beneath Fort York. We don't know the precise amount, but it may have contained as much as 30,000 pounds of gunpowder with the same number of cartridges. A British officer improvised a black powder fuse, which he ignited with his gun. Outside, Zebulon Pike and his men were a few hundred yards away, preparing to storm the fort. Sheaf left the British flag flying so the Americans wouldn't realize that it had been abandoned. The explosion happened at about 1 p.m. It would be heard on the Niagara Peninsula over 40 kilometers away. The shockwave traveled at 500 meters a second. It knocked down hundreds of American soldiers, bursting eardrums and causing bleeding. The explosion also lifted hundreds of pieces of debris into the air, rocks, timber, bricks, and musket balls. And these began to fall on the American forces. One soldier wrote, At first, the air was darkened with stones, rafters and clay. The infernal showers descended and dealt destruction to our column. 38 people were killed, and more than 222 were wounded. One of the dead was Zebulon Pike. As a safety measure, the door to the magazine faced away from the fort, and this directed the bulk of the explosion towards the Americans so that relatively few people on the British side would be hurt. Immediately following the explosions, the Americans braced for a British attack. When none came, they sent skirmishers who reported that the fort had been abandoned. At about 2 p.m., the British flag over the fort was lowered and replaced with the Stars and Stripes. 
The Americans then began advancing towards York, but had to pull back because of the clouds of smoke blowing from the burning Sir Isaac Brock. As they waited, three men would emerge from the smoke to negotiate the terms of surrender. Two of them were senior militia officers who had been entrusted with this task. The third was a clergyman and schoolmaster named John Strawn. He had absolutely no authority in this situation, but didn't see any reason why he shouldn't be in charge anyway. Wait, is that the uh, the Strawn, which Strawn Avenue is named after? The one that's always mispronounced? Uh, I think my favorite is Strachan, 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 all of those. <laughs> That's him, and we will have a lot more to say about him in future episodes because he was a very important person to the history of Toronto. But right now, well, <laughs> right now being 1813, the Americans were in a bad mood as they realized that the ships they were supposed to capture were gone and the British forces had mostly escaped. They laid out their surrender terms. Members of the militia would be paroled. This was an old custom where prisoners of war were allowed to go free with a promise not to fight again until they had been exchanged for a parolee from the other side. Private property would be respected, but all public supplies had to be turned over. The American negotiators went to get their commander to ratify these terms, but Pike was dead and Dearborn was still aboard his ship, too shaken by the explosion to come ashore. Instead, an officer came to arrest the two militiamen. As a civilian, Strawn was free to leave, but he was outraged by the arrests and made a great show of following the prisoners and protesting their treatment. This was to some extent a show because the Americans weren't likely to arrest the clergymen, but it was a good show. And because the surrender was unratified, members of the militia remained imprisoned without food or water the wounded soldiers were also left without treatment. American riflemen, led by Benjamin Forsyth, were posted in York to prevent looting. The problem was that Forsyth's men were notorious for plundering from civilians. One American officer wrote, Some of them have handkerchiefs full and have made several hundred dollars in one battle. The officers generally attempt to prevent it, but Forsyth is a perfect savage himself. During the night, any empty house was considered a target, as well as some houses that weren't empty. At one point, Elizabeth Powell, the woman whose dinner party had been ruined by the American sighting, confronted some soldiers eating in her kitchen. When she demanded they go home, one of them said he wished he could. When she asked where he came from, he said that he rented a farm from Major Bleeker. Elizabeth Powell broke out laughing. Major Bleeker was her father. The next day, John Strawn was outraged about the looting and the treatment of the prisoners. He went to Fort York and confronted Dearborn. Strawn brandished the terms of the surrender at him. Dearborn read them but told Strawn not to get involved. But Strawn just continued to badger him and declared that the delay is a deception calculated to give riflemen time to plunder and after the town has been robbed, they would perhaps sign the capitulation and tell us they respected public property. Dearborn finally agreed to ratify the surrender terms, but it didn't stop the looting. Over the next few days, the town would be pillaged. Despite her father's status, Elizabeth Powell was robbed of clothing, furniture, linen, 
kitchen utensils, silverware, books, and her husband's medical instruments. William Allen's store was robbed of ammunition, soap, rum, and assorted other items. When he complained to American officers, they replied that ammunition was always considered lawful booty, which didn't explain why they also took the soap and the rum. One militia officer reported, Few houses in the town escaped a minute search by two or three parties under the pretext of looking for public property. Some have had everything taken. American troops looted the church, the library, and smashed the local printing press. Dearborn was unwilling or unable to stop the plundering. The Americans burned the fortifications and the buildings in the fort, which wasn't surprising. But they also burned down the parliament buildings, claiming they had found a scalp suspended near the speaker's chair. Nobody knows where the scalp came from or if it was really a scalp at all, but American politicians proclaimed that it was justified the sacking of York. On May 2nd, most of the Americans boarded their ships to leave, but a storm left them stuck in the harbor for almost a week. The ships were overcrowded and the soldiers on board would be wet, cold, and seasick for most of the time. The Americans would finally depart on May 8th. Unbeknownst to them, a force of 300 to 400 Iroquois had been marching to attack them at York. The Iroquois reached Burlington before learning that the Americans had withdrawn. Many people know that the Americans sacked York, even if they don't know the details. What's much less well known is that they returned a little less than three months later. In July, the British learned that the Americans were planning to attack the main British supply depot on Burlington Heights in modern-day Hamilton. As a result, the bulk of the troops in York were rushed to defend it. The Americans who landed there quickly re-embarked without launching an attack. But two days later, the American squadron sailed into Toronto Harbor. Only a small force of dragoons had been left to defend York. They quickly realized that resistance was futile, so they collected all of the military supplies that they could find and retreated. The Americans landed, burned whatever fortifications had been rebuilt, released the inmates from prison, took whatever government supplies they could find, and sailed away the next day. The Battle of York turned out badly for most of the people involved. The British suffered 82 killed and 112 wounded, with seven missing and 274 prisoners, though most of the prisoners would be paroled. After withdrawing from York, the British soldiers faced a miserable two-week march through spring rain and mud before they finally reached Kingston. Most observers agreed that Sheaf made the right decision by abandoning York to save his forces. The American Secretary of War wrote, We cannot doubt but that in all cases in which a British commander is compelled to act defensively, his policy will be that adopted by Sheaf, to prefer the preservation of his troops to that of his post, and thus carrying off the colonel to leave us with the shell. However, local leaders were outraged. One man complained that he'd left us all standing in the street like a parcel of sheep. They demanded that George Prevost replace him, and they got their wish a couple of months later. But these men weren't just angry about the retreat. They were also upset that Chief refused to lock up members of the opposition. After the second raid, these men took advantage of the situation and established a special committee to suppress disaffection, as they called it. John Strawn explained, The present crisis 
demands measures to be taken with the disaffected, much stronger than any that can be warranted by the common operations of the law. This was a fancy way of saying they were going to ignore due process and lock up anyone they considered suspect. Some of these people really had supported the Americans, like the man who told them where to find a hidden cache of supplies. But others were only guilty of complaining about the problems in local government. Most of the charges would eventually be dropped. The one big winner from this battle was John Strawn. His confrontational performance with the Americans made him a hero to local Tories. He would become the unofficial leader of the wannabe aristocrats known as the Family Compact, who would govern Upper Canada for the next 30 years. On the other side, the Americans suffered 55 killed and 265 wounded, mostly when the munitions exploded. They failed to achieve their official goal of capturing the two warships, although they did destroy valuable stockpiles of British supplies. One American paper asked, If the object of the government is the conquest of Canada, why were two to three hundred men sacrificed to obtain York for the purpose of immediately abandoning it? Some of the individual soldiers managed to snag some valuable loot, but they were also forced to spend almost a week on overcrowded ships while they waited out the storm. Of their commanders, Pike was killed in the explosion and Dearborn would be removed from command a few months later, once it became obvious that he wasn't up to the job of commanding an army anymore. But the biggest losers would be the American government. In 1814, Napoleon had been defeated and British forces could be transferred to fight in the war. In August, British troops landed on Chesapeake Bay, defeated an American army at the Battle of Bladensburg, and occupied Washington, D.C., burning the White House, Congress, and other government buildings. George Prevost announced that, As a just retribution, the proud capital in Washington has experienced a similar fate to that inflicted by American force on the seat of government in Upper Canada. And that is the most important lesson to be learned from this episode, because... When you hit Toronto, Toronto hits back. Thanks for listening to this episode of Muddy York. If you want to find us online, you can find us at Twitter or on Twitter at Toronto underscore history. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash muddy York history. Or you can send us an email at muddy underscore York at outlook.com and our next episode is going to be for a seasonal theme. Uh, five days before the Santa Claus Parade, you can tune into Muddy York to hear about the history of this parade that goes all the way back to 1905. And yes, we know Christmas starts earlier every year, but, you know, it's a good time. So tune in and hear all about it. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs>